0: On the Empire podcast this week, Darren Aronofsky gets biblical on our asses as he talks about Noah. Anne Hathaway stops singing like a nightingale and starts singing like a parrot for Rio 2. And we discuss the rest of the week's releases, including Divergent and The Double, on the only movie podcast that is directly inspired by a story by Dostoyevsky. And by that, of course, we don't mean the idiots, so shut up. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Helen O'Hara, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are the three Empire writers who were caught in the London smog this morning and it was so thick they didn't notice the rope traps I rigged outside the office door. First up is Ali Plum, who, if he were indivergent, would choose abnegation because every week he selflessly edits this podcast for your listening pleasure and also looks good in grey. Hello, Ali.
1: Hello. That's uh, kind of you to say. I don't really have any comment.
0: Okay. <laughs> next we've got Phil Desemlin, whose faction would be erudite since he's terribly well read and can hopefully tell me who this Dostoevsky bloke is What? Yeah? Yeah And finally here's Nick De Semlin who would clearly join Amity since he calls people neighbour even if they live on the <laughs> other side of London
2: I call one person neighbour Chris Hewitt We don't live we, we did never live next door to each other but I must say in Captain America Winter Soldier Captain America's neighbour calls him neighbour at one point so hey. it's obviously becoming a thing
0: you, you have set a trend which mm-hmm. is now being followed by Captain America's neighbour uh, all this week the questions have been flooding in and sloshing around this pod arc and we're going to start with at V 511 says dirty Harry dirty dozen dirty dancing kiss marry or kill
2: <laughs> that's a weird
3: question it's a very weird
0: question <laughs> I had to choose it. it I'm sorry prove it proved
3: the weirdness levels of that question I think
1: I'd have to kill dirty dozen because you, you know kill or be killed And I think Dirty Dancing you'd probably marry, which means that I'm kissing a Callahan.
2: So, yeah, that's what I've got. Wow. Yeah, I'm kissing Clint Eastwood. My only thought on this is I wouldn't marry Dirty Harry because he has a farting bulldog called Meathead, which I think would get on your nerves after a while. Also, can you imagine the arguments if you married
1: Callahan? I mean, they would be tempestuous.
0: Let's go on to the next one. Uh, At Bill underscore Sitch asks... What's your favourite final shot in a film? Mine's the shot of the house at the top of the falls in Up. Which is lovely. Good choice, Bill.
1: Mine would have to be the crane shot as Stereophonics Maybe Tomorrow starts belting through the sky at the very end of the Oscar-winning Picture crash.
3: Oh, come on. Really? No. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no, not
1: really. I knew you were going to say that. I don't actually have one. This isn't something that I've thought of. I've got several things that spring to mind, like Inception recently is obviously one that, that stays long in the memory, mm. you know, with the spinning top. But you could also say, you know, Planet of the Apes is, is one that would, I guess, turn yeah. up in many lists like this. That's I've searches Searchers is a classic. Freeze-frame ending, that's something Chris and I love a lot. There's a fantastic freeze-frame ending for Hot Rod. Two characters fight, and one is victorious after a long series of not being able to be victorious. And it's this great fist-pumping... Action shot, which I really love. Breakfast Club has got Breakfast great.
0: Breakfast Club, has got yeah. great that's quite a frame.
2: good one. That could be the definitive one. I'm also thinking Beverly Hills Cop, where um, Axel Foley just turns to the camera and goes, "You can't really see it on a podcast what I'm doing, but I'm essentially making a circle with my my finger and thumb."
1: On that note, Butch Cassidy the Sundance Kid is the one of that. Like, it is the freeze frame ending.
3: Four hundred
2: blows. I knew that was coming. I mean,
3: seriously, that was actually on my list as well. Oh come on, it was. Yeah, four hundred blows. gallipoli has got a great one as well, actually and that where it kind of fades to it just it fades into a sepia picture i think as well mm-hmm. um which That's i love always nice yeah ghostbusters 2 you're pretty Ghost sure it doesn't end with ghosts running along the
2: beach uh, and whatever, just staring into the camera I can't think of in it black and top white of my head but i'm sure it's it's astonishing
3: it is astonishing
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh, casino royale I know has is. the the name's bond james bond right
3: what about back to the future
0: how about uh, the shining
3: the shining's great mm-hmm. there's so many great ones I'm 2001 gonna, a space odyssey is that the fetus with the giant space features
2: I'm going to throw in uh, Rebecca with the um, you know the house is on fire and the camera goes through the window and there's a handkerchief with R the letter R on it which oh, is yeah. great I like that originally uh, David O. Selznick, who produced this is a bit of trivia uh, wanted um, it, it to pan up into the sky where the, the, the smoke from the fire is forming the letter R but Hitchcock said that's stupid
4: <laughs> that's-
2: <laughs> my all time favourite last shot has to be Razor to the Lost Ark come on guys yeah. yeah, yeah. What happens in that Not one? Arguing. Are they like in like a? It's where Indy turns to the uh, camera and just yeah. goes, "Yeah," does big thumbs up. <laughs> he does <at night, laughs> <five, five> a <laughs> He plunges the sky and then. See the amazing, you next
3: time at a big '80s riff,
0: just oh, blasts yeah. out your speakers. Don't you forget about me?
3: <laughs> but the 1940s jazz version, the 19 late '30s. What about the sort of ambiguous endings? I'm gonna Hayden cachet, for instance. Okay, where it just ends with the with the shot of the on the steps of the school and you and and, and the answer maybe lies in there somewhere the what's happened or maybe it doesn't
0: or how about shallow grave
3: great films that have final opening and bookmarked by the same shot like colito's way has you know comes back to that point mm-hmm. um i just watched wake in fright which is out on dvd and blu-ray it's a classic australian movie which i hadn't seen before which does that ends with a um, the circularity of this guy's journey ending up back where he came from uh, with a kind of a crane shot over a deserted kind of outback train station um, which reminded me a bit of Once Upon a Time in the West. Fight Club, anyone? Oh yeah, of oh, course. Yeah. Speaking of Fight Club,
1: Rocky, he has a face like a uh, some like someone sat on a watermelon
2: because a tear trickles out his eye. That's mm. just after... <laughs> Um, which is nice we got to we got to put a word in for shock endings Where in the last shot you're going Oh this is nice And then something like, And freaks you out uh, Is the ultimate one Carrie? Mm. I think it might be I, I watched the be. remake of Carrie on the weekends uh, Which is actually okay It's alright um, But they completely arse up the final shot Where instead of a hand coming out of the grave You just hear Eah! And then the CG cracks on the on the thing There's no arm comes out Come on Come on, put the arm in. Put the arm in.
0: Well, it's it's all a bit out of keeping with the book, isn't it? Which is more of like a tragic story of this poor abused girl, who you know goes a bit nuts. Um, yeah. Rather because the the arm out of the grave is a bit. I mean, it's don't get me wrong, it's brilliant, but it is also just a shock.
2: Helen, don't make me go. Bah!
0: Oh God.
3: Yep. The he thing. Went, the thing is a great ending, but it doesn't have that. It could have that, I suppose. Could it? Could it have that? Where it's just no, it's perfect as it is. It's sort of I think perfect you, as you, I think it is. The dog came out. Um. and
0: both uh, both the apartment and some like it hot have just great. They're more or less lines than oh, it's, yeah. it's the line as much as the shot, but it, they're pretty perfect. The apartment's good, going. yeah. They're on
1: the sofa playing that card game and never shut remember. up and deal. What's the name of that card game? I always forget. It's like it, I don't, it's gin rummy. Gin they're rummy. <laughs> Wrestlers that uh, freeze frame ending when he's leaping off the. It Rose. is. It is. Yeah. That's yeah. a gr- I, That's a really good one on that topic. I'd mm. also mention uh, the graduates bus uh, as it drives off. All yeah. Wayne's well too.
2: Yes. Which you know does the same thing but slightly better. A little bit I mean.
1: better improves <laughs> on the original. <laughs> quite substantial. Christopher Walken in it. That's
3: all I need. That's enough for me. Should we end this with a bleh? White heat. Okay. That's a bit of a blare. Made it more.
0: I think we've just about exhausted that one. Thank you very much, Bill, for that question. Next up, at Hannah Dowell asks, "Who is the greatest Disney sidekick?"
1: I think Helen and I would both say we could do a whole podcast on this. Like this is such a big question. I've long thought about this since since year dot. I thought about this, but it's got to be Toby, the massive dog from Basil the Great Mouse Detective, and I'll tell you why. Because he's a massive dog. He's a very, very good uh, scent sniffing super hound, and he loves crumpets. And that's all I need from a sidekick mm. in a Disney movie is a big, adorable animal.
0: That is compelling. <laughs> but, like, Thumper in Bambi, like, thumps his foot really hard. Yeah, that's so...
1: mm. a good point. Gun to my head, probably say genie, right? If you include yeah. him as if a he's, sidekick. If he's a sidekick. Mm. Uh, the, the, the debate here is, is he actually just a main character? Is he a sidekick? Like, I would say Mushu is a sidekick in Mulan.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And he's great. He's kind of genie light. Uh, but I really love the bit where he's up in the top of one of the palace towers and he says, I'm your worst nightmare. Um, dressed mm. as Batman, which is beautifully out of context. Uh, <laughs> and I would also mention Pascal from Tangled, the little chameleon, who's very cute. Similarly, non-speaking cute animal thing. I've got mm. a I've got a thing for the non-speaking animals.
2: I have a question on, on this topic. Uh, are you allowed to have a villain sidekick? Mm. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, because I, I would suggest Kronk from Emperor's New Groove. Kronk, I'm not familiar with Kronk's work Oh, uh, Kronk is the best, Kronk's,
1: Kronk's New Groove is terrible, the sequel, directed DVD but Kronk in Emperor's New Groove is and New... that's worth watching because I always see that on Netflix if you have a spare 90 minutes, watch Emperor's New Groove do not watch Kronk's New Groove <laughs> it, it, put it this way, Kronk is a lug headed, he's played by the same guy who plays Puddy in um, Seinfeld and uh, who was also in the B movie he has an, an innate talent of being able to speak to squirrels, so that's just great mm.
2: I was thinking of uh, the parrot from Aladdin, uh, Jafar's. Is that Iago? Iago, Iago, yeah. Yeah, which implies that he's kind of really behind the scenes of everything. (laughs) (laughs) He's whispering in people's... Iago.
0: There's Maximus the horse from um, Tangled. Uh, Sven, isn't it? The reindeer from Frozen. Very similar. Very similar. I
2: thought he was a moose, but my... No, he's a reindeer. reindeer. Who's reindeer. Who's Robin Hood's sidekick? Well, it would
1: probably be Little John, but is he a sidekick? Yeah, I mean, he's mm. more of a main character. You get into the blue issue The blue, issue, the, the blue the big blue <laughs> debate. I mean, I remember reading and that in Sight and Sound when I was much younger. <laughs> the
2: blue debate.
0: Flounder, obviously, in, debate. in the Fl- Little Mermaid. Flounder's a prat. Flounder's a great Excuse example, him. though.
2: What's the name of the lobster from Little Mermaid? Sebastian. You mean the Sebastian. crab? Oh God! What about the what about uh, Dumbo's Dumbo's pal? Oh, the mouse. I don't think he's a
1: sidekick.
3: What is he? not? I feel operator. like he's too he's too he's too much of a lead thing. I just don't know, this oh, is so difficult it's for freaky. me It's challenging What about um, Jiminy Cricket? That's what I meant, Jiminy Cricket
0: Jiminy Cricket, actually, that's kind of pretty good Jiminy that's cricket. A, that's a pretty good argument right He's now.
3: kind of psychic, stroke, pious, moral guardian I find him a bit irritating Because he's a pious, moral he's guardian a bit irritating, <laughs> isn't he? You know what he'd say to that? He's, he'd say, hey, hey, you doodly, doodly, doodly. He's, yeah, he's
1: so an Ed Ed need to think about, the about the your life. Universe. Like it's a little harsh, don't you think? Mm. A sub-question to this is, what's the best sidekick song in a Disney movie? And I think the winner of that is Cogsworth and Lumiere mm. uh, in Beauty and the Beast. That be our has guest. Be, you know, Amazing. That is, that is such a great, huge, triumphant, gorgeous song, and it's totally them, and they're great fun. And I'd also mention, from a more recent Disney movie, Princess and the Frog, I love Ray. Uh, Louis deserves a mention, uh, the uh, jazz-loving, trumpet-playing um, alligator. But
3: Ray. Uh, the buck-toothed, star-loving light bug, is cute as a button I like talking about villainous psychics, Cruella de goons they're mm-hmm. pretty entertaining
0: they're, they're quite fun yeah
3: why does she hire them they're literally incompetent
0: I think I think this is a key to being a, a really great Disney villain because I think like Maleficent is my favourite by a country mile Disney villain mm. but she does in fairness hire really incompetent sidekicks who spend 16 years looking for a baby the only way that you get a really good villain in a, in a Disney movie because otherwise obviously because they're a good villain they'd have killed the, the whoever in about five seconds flat so the only way they, they can be stopped from killing the whoever in five seconds flat is to have really incompetent Help, so it's the only th- it, it has to. They have to have that yeah. weakness. They have to have that Achilles heel.
3: Yeah, if like Cruella Deville had Leon's phone number, or exactly Harvey Keitel in *Pulp
0: Fiction*. Well, then we'd be in some serious movie. trouble. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah,
3: yeah, okay, all right. They're fun though. They are. They're fun, fun and kind of charming.
0: Uh We haven't mentioned uh, Rowan Atkinson's character in *The Lion King*, uh, whose uh, name escapes me. So Z- he's probably not that good. Zazu. Or- Zaz- Zazu, Is right. it
1: Zazu. Yeah, that's in my head. Mm-hmm. I get Zazu. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Pumbaa and Timon. I don't think they count as sidekicks because they're, they're no. a comedy
2: double act. It's like those mice from Cinderella. Well, it's like Chip and Dale. Yeah. I, although I kind of think Dale is, is Chip's sidekick. Ooh, <laughs> ouch. <clears throat> Chip is getting the business done. Getting the business done. <laughs> getting down to business. He's taking names. I think so. Mm. Mostly his own. Now, well, Rescue Rangers <laughs> is apparently
1: being turned into a film, so look forward to I'm on to board. I'm, I'm really on board. On board. I mean, yep. it's, obviously it's just um, a pastiche of other things, but it's great.
0: Okay, I think we have conclusively failed to answer that one. Um, Next up, uh, a quick question from Ross Miller, at Ross T. Miller, in fact. He asks, we all hate those who disrupt others at the cinema, but have you ever been the one to be disruptive? Fess up.
2: Oh, yes. Oh, God. Yeah, I have. I
0: have, actually. I'll, I'll be honest. Chris and I went to a multimedia screening of 2012, the Roland Emmerich disaster flick, and we quite, spent literally. quite a lot of time um, making sarky comments to each other about what was happening on screen, ironically high-fiving, um, and generally being obnoxious about the whole thing. I mean, we had a blast, but James, who was sitting next to us, tells me that we were slightly annoying. So, sorry, anyone who's in the vicinity. actually Cindy.
2: get told off by anyone.
0: No, no, we didn't.
2: I've been told off by someone. Oh, but no. I, it is a great injustice, which to this day I, <laughs> I, I am bitter and, and protest of. Um, yeah, I got told off during a screening of Predators for breathing too loudly. <laughs> which is quite ironic in a film about a creature that breathes really loudly. <laughs> but um, I had a bit of a cold, but I wasn't aware of it. And Chris was with me. He didn't hear me. So I'm quite annoyed at the lady who turned around to me in the middle of the film. and went, for goodness sake, stop breathing so loudly. And I was, the rest of the movie, I was just sitting there going, ah. I should have said Stop something I should have said something witty back, but I yeah. That, wow. Like what? I don't know. You stopped breathing so loudly. I should have said that. If only I had thought of it at the time. I mm. know it
1: was upsetting. I can't believe anybody would ever say that. Um, my biggest uh, it's terrible really, but I was at the filmhouse cinema in Edinburgh, which is a lovely art house cinema and I went to go and see with my girlfriend at the time, uh, White Christmas. Obviously it was December right. time and it was a matinee and lots of old folk were in there, there was barely anyone in there. And we were just a little bit kind of hot toddy drunk and uh were laughing and just saying things and oh I love this song type stuff. And an old lady, which i i loved really. I, I I'm totally at fault here, came four seats, she was four rows behind us, walked down in the middle of the film Uh-oh. and was like, You must be more respectful to <laughs> cinema And I was like, Yeah, yep, yeah, you got it. I'm absolutely right. And so yeah, you just have that feeling terrible for the next hour. But yeah, I'm sorry, old lady,
3: lovely old lady. She might have been in the film. She could have been in the film. Yes. Yeah. The lady in front of you at Predators wasn't t- clearly wasn't in Predators. I don't know. No. She
2: was frightening looking.
3: Have you seen her since? No. 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 Gosh. No. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because like breathing, is not. It's not like eating popcorn or taking phone calls. No. You kind
2: of need to do it a bit. <laughs> at least. It's a loud film as well. I don't <laughs> it's know, a really what, loud whatever, film. What, what kind of noises I was making? Yeah. But um.
0: How about you, Phil? Have you ever, you know, unconsciously mouthed along in French while watching yeah. something? Or, uh, yeah, you know? just
3: shouting. I think just general, probably just generally annoying, I think. While eating couscous throwing, too loudly. Yeah, during <laughs> throwing my, my couscous around. <laughs> no, I don't know. I couldn't, i probably pick and mix too loudly. Just general disruption, snoring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, it's really important not to do that, Phil, when you go and see films.
3: Waking up suddenly. Uh, you really did
1: love Noah, didn't you? <laughs> I did love No On an unrelated note Oh come on no Have you guys fallen
2: asleep During a film?
1: Uh, I fell asleep During Tron Legacy Mm. Uh, I was exhausted I'd come back From uh, a trip to America And it was the day Afterwards And was really Looking forward to it 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 didn't help That the film Wasn't very good But I was yeah In the IMAX screen uh, That's how excited I was to see it It gets quite chilled At a
2: certain point Jeff Bridges Sort of uh, weird Sort of CG Jeff Bridges Starts doing some Space yoga um, that was enough for me. Cyber you. yoga, mm. whatever it is, and it starts getting quite mellow.
0: I kept having little micro sleeps during A Serious Man, not because it wasn't good; it was obviously brilliant, but because I was just off a flight and I thought I could. I thought, you know, it's like, but it's the Goins. I really want to see it. I'm going to go anyway. I can stay awake. I couldn't stay awake.
2: It was a flight from Paris, Helen. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I missed the second act of uh, Dark Shadows, but didn't miss a lot.
0: Didn't miss a lot.
3: You missed the second. You just fell asleep for just the second act. Oh yeah, third act was great. The resolution. You're yeah. awake and ready to go. Uh, um, yeah. Well, don't ask me because everybody knows. <laughs> 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 fell asleep in Pacific Rim.
0: There you go. Oh Phil. Um, I, mm. And we also we had the Empire Awards, of course, this week. Now all our coverage is online empireonline.com slash awards 2014 you can see all the coverage of the night and all the winner speeches and everything else it was fantastic I, the reason I mention this is because we have a question about it Barry Morgan who goes by at Mr. Dick Splash asks what was your favourite moment from the night wait is the answer just going to be Emma Thompson yes. Well, yes
2: yep pretty much yes
0: I mean, the, the, not to you know, denigrate our other guests. There were other great speeches. Arnold Schwarzenegger brought the house down with yeah. a very, very funny speech. James McAvoy made everyone take a drink before he would leave the stage. He was having I, a good time. He'd already wasn't. had a couple, perhaps, mm. himself. He also, fun fact, puts his jacket on exactly the same way that President Bartlett does in the West Wing. Um, so that was, that was cool.
2: I must say, tangentially on the Emma Thompson thing, it was fantastic seeing uh, her um, seeing Tom Cruise... Uh-huh. And he, t- Tom Cruise turned around and saw Emma Thompson, who they obviously know each other, but they hadn't seen each other for a long time. And he goes, hello, love, in what must be the worst Cockney accent. But that was an amazing moment.
3: <laughs> that's pretty cool. I stumbled upon Sally Hawkins mid-conversation with Army.
2: Wow. That's incredible.
3: I'm assuming they were talking about Predator. It's hard to tell, but that was pretty, <laughs> that's unusual. That was unusual. Maybe cool. he
0: was praising Blue Jasmine. Maybe he's a huge Woody Allen fan. Or, or Mike Lee fan. Or Mike Lee He's fan. always wanted to
2: work with Mike Lee. Enjoyed seeing Win, uh, seeing Edgar Wright geeking out uh, as he met Arnie for the first time. Arnold just sort of walked up to him and went, "good to see you," and then walked <laughs> off, and they'd never met before, and he was pretty excited about that. That's
0: pretty cool. And we also had Brian Cox meet Professor Brian Cox. Whoa, that was pretty cool. Uh, and the two of them uh, revealed that they've had they've been mistaken for each other, you know, on a lot of occasions, and been been asked to do bits of work that the other one was actually wanted for. Good. So, you know, the actor Brian Cox would turn up and be expected to give a lecture on quantum mechanics and Professor Brian Cox would be expected to talk about the Bourne trilogy and it all got very confusing apparently.
2: I would like to see that. We have to get the Chris Evanses together next year, don't we? That's the only the only way we can top this.
0: Yes, that is, there we go. That's on our to-do list for 2015. Uh, so yes, incredible awards. Uh, do check it out online if you haven't already. And yeah, and also, you know, enter the Done in 60 Seconds competition next year. You could be there with us. Okay, time for our first interview now. Our guest is one of only two people to have won an Oscar and also played Catwoman. And in a fight between the two, we think she'd win because her Catwoman didn't suck. Uh, Anne Hathaway rose to fame in a number of smarter than your average teen movies and moved up the A list thanks to the likes of The Devil Wears Prada, Becoming Jane, and of course Les Miserables. As she reprises her role as Jewel in the Rio sequel, we sent Phil and Ali along to talk to her. What's your favourite
3: English snack? Um, snack?
0: Do you have
5: yeah, I think my favourite is salt and vinegar chips. Crisps, Crisps. thank you so much. Um, and So I like, I like that one. Yeah, that, that, one, that one's the one that I kind of miss. I mean, you can get them in the States, but it's not really the same thing, because I'm usually having it with a beer. A lager. And I don't know, does a Pim's cup like, count as a snack? I feel like there's so much fruit it's in it. has got a
3: lot of like, cucumber. <laughs>
5: yeah. and, um, I, feel, I feel like it's kind of like an alcoholic salad.
3: It's a drink and then it becomes a snack at the bottom. And the <laughs> yes, question exactly. is how dedicated you are to f- plucking out all of the vegetables.
5: It depends on how many I've had. Because uh, drunken dedication is a very serious yes, thing. Yes,
3: because the booze may soak into the cucumber. Some more silly
1: questions. Uh, right, so there is a talent competition in Rio 2. Mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. were in a talent competition, imagine that and you were asked to display a talent, what would your talent be? You cannot sing.
5: Okay, um, I... this is going to sound so lame. I'm really good at packing a suitcase.
1: Wow. So, so good that you'd want to show it off?
5: <laughs> I don't know that I'd necessarily want to show it off. I'm also really good at organizing. Mm. So I might want to just, like, be blindfolded, like, walk into, like, a really disorganized closet and then be able to put it in order in, like, under a certain amount of time.
1: Do you rearrange your DVDs and your Blu-rays and that sort of book stuff in, like, chronological and alphabetical stuff? You're that level?
5: Well, when I uh, finally got to move into my home... Um, that sounded weird. When I moved into my home, I uh, and and I got all my books out of storage. They, when I said the finally, they'd been in storage for many many years. I got them out and I did do them chronologically, alphabetically, all that stuff. But then I didn't like the way they looked, so then I um, uh, I did them in order by rainbow color.
3: Rainbow color, because I couldn't tell you what how the colors align on the rainbow, like off the top of my head. where Would you, Biff? Oh,
5: there, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I did not know that.
3: It's the acronym, right? I didn't know yeah. that was an acronym. Okay.
1: And uh, right. and
5: so and so, I mean, I didn't I didn't follow it to the letter of the law. I mean, the rainbow the, the the rainbow uh, librarians are just going. They're going to come know, and check. They are not going to be they're impressed with my work. Check. But no, so I just organized it by subject, and then within the subjects, I tried to organize them. Right okay. I don't know. That's amazing. I've never heard that before. That's phenomenal. I just love the
1: idea of a rainbow librarian.
3: But anyway, <laughs> they're out there
5: oh, and yes. they're coming. I. You know what? Now that the internet that exists i'm convinced that there's some there's one of everyone <laughs> there's yes. definitely a rainbow library uh, there's there's a rainbow library science enthusiast i know it
3: mm. Mm. driving vans around looking for people <laughs> who have got the order slightly wrong in their dvd collection which of your dvds just on a quick side note have you watched the most well say? it's
5: not a dvd but can i can i go to vhs yeah. Um, uh, Waiting for Guffman.
3: I saw that for the first time just recently.
5: Mm-hmm. And I this. guess I guess I did have got by the DVD at some point, but for the longest time, it was my VHS that I watched the most. But um, the DVD, and, I, and I'm remembering, yes, I must have watched started watching it on DVD at some point. Because have you ever seen the deleted scenes? No. Oh my god.
3: What's your favorite deleted scene from Waiting for Guffman?
5: But, well, there's two. It, one is Parker Posey's audition monologue, in which she and she wrote it herself, and she's like such a genius, and it's. <laughs> It's her character. And she's written herself like the most dramatic, like flowers in the attic monologue about incest. And it. And, and her, she's, the whole thing is addressed to her brother who's lying on a life support system. And at the end, it's just, it, I can't, I mean, you know what, I'm not even going to tell you, because you got to see it. But just when she says the punchline at the end, think of me and... It's so great. And so that one and then there's a song in it called Bulging River. <laughs> <laughs> oh and it's really really good. And I think um I might get his name wrong, but it's Michael McKean, right? Mm, yes. From, yeah. yeah. So he apparently was the one who wrote all the music for that movie and uh and they had to cut a bunch of it cuz they're like it's too good. Like government like this this actually might have been able to do well. We had to cut a lot of it out to make it look more amateur.
1: Yes. I have that problem with most of my work. Being too good, just being a little too good. Not that must be very good. tough for you. I'm lot.
5: sure you're very popular with everyone. Popular, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Define being popular, yeah. <laughs> um, I had a question. We
3: really enjoyed your cameo in Don John.
5: Oh, thanks. Last
3: year, in in it a wrong alongside Channing Tatum, and you appeared on the alias Emily Lombardo.
5: I did? You did, yeah. You, were, <laughs>
3: you weren't Anne Hathaway. You were Emily Lombardo. But um, I wondered, at Empire, we give films ratings out of, out of five stars. Okay. How many stars do you think special someone would get? <laughs> and is, would it make a good date movie in real life?
5: Uh, well, I have a question. At Empire, do you respect rom-coms? Yeah. Yes. Oh, come we on. That is not... Everything. I don't believe it. You. You're like... Ee. But so I think it would depend on where it came down. I think we'd be a solid three or a two and a half. You know, like a solid
1: three. <laughs> That'll be in the movie poster.
3: A solid three. Empire. <laughs> we say that's a recommendation. So,
5: <laughs> I think I think in the movie poster, be like the audience is eighty-seven percent female. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Perfectly decent.
5: Absolutely acceptable.
3: You give Channing Tatum a solid slap in that in the in mm. one of the clips we see in the trailer for that film. And I, I believe Deborah Winger did something similar to you in 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 Rachel getting married.
5: Yeah, except she really hit me. She really Chan- hit you. Channing. That was that we. we I, I don't. You didn't hit Channing. I d- didn't. I didn't. I didn't. He's like, just hey. that good. He's just that good. A physical comedian that he really, really sold it. But no, Deborah and I. You know, we had all this stunt training and, you know, Rachel getting married was such a, you know, a little film, like, um, they like hired a stunt coordinator and he'd like taught us it. And we spent like weeks rehearsing it. And then the first take, she just popped me right in the mouth. And I don't know if she'd want me to tell this story, but, um, but I'm going to tell it. So, which she was so horrified by what happened. She had a physical reaction and like got a little sick and then swallowed it and then got sick. Like not, no, no, no. Like ill, like, like, not like, this sounds terrible this is going where this is going into a very bad place but yeah and so like yeah she popped me and i don't think and and then we did take after take after take and she missed me every single time but of course that one was the best because her reaction is just it's just totally organic
1: come on who hasn't experienced guilt hives you do something oh my god
5: i know have you ever seen um uh keeping the faith it's a ben stiller movie he directed or maybe edward Norton directed it. Edward Norton directed it with Ben Stiller. Anyway, one one of them, Edward Norton plays a priest. Um, ben Stiller plays a, a rabbi and he's having trouble finding love and he goes on a date with this girl and she's... Most ideal person to be on a date with, and she and he like goes to open up. He like goes to look at her, the books that are out, and it's a uh, it's it's hiding VHS exercise tapes, and so and so she she sees him see them, and then um, she's like, oh my god, you found my tapes. They're my life. And she's like, seriously, my abs. They're like they're rocks. Go on, hit me. And he's like, no, I, I really don't want to. And she's like, no, 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 seriously, hit me. And he's like, no, I really don't. and She's like, come on. And she starts you know taunting him, and so then he punches her in the stomach, and then she just drops to the floor. It's a really good scene.
1: <laughs> What's worrying is that a, a, a situation like that has happened to me in my life.
5: L- literally. Yeah,
1: and the response from the girl was punching me in the face.
5: Oh, dear. L- where, where did she punch? Which part of your face? She
1: punched me just on the um, cheekbone. Yeah, I've actually still got a scar there. That is a genuine story. Which really? Of no relevance to anybody, but that. It,
3: it <laughs>
1: except,
5: except Ben Stiller.
3: Yeah, Ben Stiller would love that story.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Next time I see him. Uh, Rachel getting married was a fantastic film, I thought. Really, really wonderful. And um, I, you shot it in thirty-three days with Jonathan Demme, the great Jonathan Demme of Silence of the Lambs* fame. Yeah. It looked like it was, it looked like a big sort of house party that yeah. you that you were shooting. I know that the, the yeah. material was very tough and there were a lot of tough scenes in it. And your character goes through the whole gamut of emotion. What's your sort of a favorite memory from from that period, from that particular? Do you have like is there one thing <sighs> that that springs to mind?
5: Um, thank you for bringing this film up because I love talking about it it's it's still like one of my professional like favorite things and, and it was such an important film for me in my life and, um, and it was just so great you know um, it took us a year to get financing so from the time that like Jonathan and I met for the first time and discussed the character until we actually shot it was a year so we just worked on the character together for a year. And and then when we were there, it was a little hard for me because my character was so isolated from everyone, so everyone else, you know, played a dozen instruments and they would all sit around having, you know, jamming all the time and I'd just be off in a corner sitting in a hammock smoking. I think, you know, what my favorite, I have a lot, I have a few favorite memories on that one. One of them was Rosemary DeWitt and I, we just kind of had this little intuitive thing with each other. We got together when she was cast and, you and of course, she plays Rachel. We we had a lovely, lovely dinner together, and we got to know each other. And then we pretty much didn't talk for the entire film, but it wasn't awkward. It was just kind of a vibe that we both decided to respect, which was, or rather, an instinct that we both decided to respect, which was let's not become besties. Let's let's respect the 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 chasm between our characters. And so, I think my f- one of my favorite memories from that film was. When it was finally all over and, you know, we were all up at the house anyway and so we kind of had a barbecue, had a house party and Rosemary came up to me with a bottle of wine and two glasses and she said, now let's talk. <laughs> and we just sat down and we had a few glasses of wine together and we talked about the experience and, and it was really nice because, I mean, it, it, pretty amazing actually that we both were in the same place and we had never discussed how we were going to do it. Yeah. You
3: should have gone, nope, it's too late now.
5: <laughs> it's
3: done. We've got to wrap, but just before we do... Oh,
5: you guys are lovely to talk to. Well, you can
3: come and see us again, I we, guess. Well, we said we were good. Well, we were sort of lying, but it came off okay in the end. Um, do you, just before we go, what can you not tell us about Interstellar? It's done in space, right? No, that's oh. good. That's a reveal.
4: <laughs> I'm taking Um, them.
5: I can't tell. I, literally, I There's nothing I can tell you. I it's just it's a chris nolan movie so we're all gonna have our minds blown and you you play stella right (laughs) i play inter
3: he's watching thank Thank you you so much thank you so so much
0: right it's movie news time what have you got for me today
1: let's talk about frozen because we just mentioned it with the reindeer who is also a dog sven i watched this last night because i thought well as the news has arrived that it's hit one billion dollars in the worldwide box office it just finished well it is finishing its final run in its final market which is in japan It has now earned obviously more than that at this current point 1.072 billion dollars and it's only going up it's coming out on dvd this week so really it's just going to never end this is now the 10th biggest film of all time obviously there's does not account for inflation. There are plenty of movies that came out a long, long time ago, 70 years ago, that would give this a run for its money, literally, uh, including Snow and White and The Seven Dwarves. But it is a huge success. There is no doubt about it. What I love is that when I mention this on the Empire Facebook page... It doesn't feel like it's very Empire at all. Like, everyone's reacted by going, Oh, how, this, how has this movie got to a billion dollars and I've never seen it? Well, because you haven't seen it. And lots of, I guess, young girls absolutely adore this film with its belting tunes and what not. Uh, it is the number one animated movie ever. It's a shame, obviously, its whole construct means that it can't be sequelized. But it it could inspire another adjectival title, <laughs> uh, you know, slightly too beautiful filled uh, princess film where they uh, meet men and it's great.
0: I mean, to be honest, yeah, they're talking about a Frozen 2 even despite the lack of an obvious sequel, you know, thing there. I guess... You could do something else with Elsa's party. You could have Anna suddenly discovering she's got the ability to do something or other which leads to stuff and things.
2: Sven spin-off.
0: Sven spin-off. Olaf spin-off. I mean that basically when it with this kind of money in the bank you can be sure they are going to do it. And on term on you mentioned there in terms of inflation and so on, if you adjust for inflation, in modern dollars, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves has made nine hundred and ten million dollars in the US. So would do better than this worldwide, we think, but they haven't got worldwide figures going back far enough to be sure. But yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible result for Disney. So um, you know, bravo to them.
1: Yeah, it's interestingly, it pipped, it pushed the Dark Knight Rises off the top ten list. Wow, and it is the first really? animated movie. Uh, No, it's after Toy Story 3, so it's the second animated movie to hit a billion. That's amazing. There you go. Uh, The other piece of news that I want to talk about in particular is that Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, which is the cult horror comedy starring Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine, is going to get a sequel after a couple of years, actually. It was 2010 that this mock horror came out, and it's a lot of fun. I know uh, Nick necessarily isn't the biggest fan, but Helen and I really, really enjoy it. The bit Mm -hmm. involving the bees and the chainsaw is very 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 funny. So I think this is wonderful. This is a getting sequel. This feels like a movie that deserves it and could easily have more fun poking fun at other horror pastiches. The first one was a Cabin in the Woods hillbilly thing where they accidentally appear like they're mass murderers, when it turns out it's just a series of incredibly lemony, lemony, snicketed, like unfortunate events that have taken place where a bunch of teenagers accidentally die and it looks like they've done it. They could do this in a haunted house or in a castle or whatever, okay. just take it to another spot and do it all over
2: again. To be fair, I did like it my problem with it was it felt like a short film rather than it felt like a one joke thing I thought they did the joke incredibly well but over an hour and a half uh, I thought it wore a bit thin and I'm not sure how in a sequel they're going to be able to sustain that I mean it's a a great idea it's a hilarious idea it's kind of a you know it could have been a funny or die short but over a film let alone a series I don't know
3: I don't know I didn't have that problem I thought it was I thought it had just about enough and especially the two leads are very likeable characters They they find other other comic beats as well as just the sort of uh, the mistaken, um, a, a mistaken identity
2: kind of thing, mistaken
3: yeah. identity, accidental death, accidental slaughter type uh, scenario. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just it's, about. It's beautifully, I,
0: I love it that it's beautifully balanced between the college kids assuming that these two hillbillies are redneck killers, mm. and these two hillbillies trying to figure out why these college kids keep killing themselves in front of them mm, as, as, yes. as it appears to them that they are doing and they're very confused and worried by the whole thing um, and they're just so good hearted. I, I put this on I may have mentioned this in the podcast before in fact I put this on at Christmas and my mum who's not known for her love of horror movies <laughs> cackled her way through it with, with great glee so I honestly think that if, if a sequel gets it to a bigger audience that it could be a very good thing because I think it, it's it's got an unlikely appeal to all sorts of people.
1: My other news just to quickly uh, talk about it is that you know how we mentioned a few months ago that Fantastic Beasts, which was that spin-off charity um, book that J.K. Rowling wrote, which is within the world of Harry Potter and essentially discusses different fantastical beasts within the world of Harry Potter, uh, that is being turned into a film, but they're now saying, Warners uh, are saying they want to turn it into a trilogy, kind of Hobbit style, so...
0: In the least surprising news ever.
1: Yeah, that's... That's a thing. That's a thing and I, uh, yeah.
0: I mean it's it's way too early to say that this is necessarily a bad decision on the basis that we don't know what she's planning. The, the book itself gives you nothing to go on. It, it sets up this guy who's a magizoologist who's done all this research into magical beasts all over the world. Uh, the book is literally just a list of those beasts and a sort of a, car- a paragraph on each just explaining what they are and what they do. Um, and there's, you know, it's some funny stuff and it's kind of charming and if you've read the Harry Potter books, you know, some stuff that they refer to in passing is kind of explained there. So it's, it's a nice little thing but there's absolutely no story there. So whatever they're going to do, It's a blank slate, really, for a story. And as long as whatever they come up with is a good one, I guess fine.
1: And it is important to remember that J.K. Rowling is writing the scripts herself. She is, yeah. But we'll see. I like
2: beasts, magical beasts even better. (laughs) Um, She's a great storyteller. So until we see proof that it's not good... I'm, I'm down for this yeah. this sounds good to me
0: and also I, I love the settings this is set 70 years before the Harry Potter stories now I know that they've been sort of filmed as modern day stuff but it's strictly they're meant to be set in the 90s but so if you take 70 years off you're either talking 1920s or 1930s either way it's a sort of a cool Mm. Is kind of either Gatsby or Steampunk. you know, or or Indiana Jones meets the world of Harry Potter. Mm. If you, I mean those kind of combinations, I think are really cool. Adele sec maybe is is maybe a good uh, good thing to to kind of use as a as a model. This could look just really really wicked. Mm. Um, so I hope they do something wicked with it.
2: I'm going to segue into my story. Please because do my story also. Uh, has a kind of magical beast um, in the shape of a panther who is pink and rinky dink they are bringing the pink panther back to the screen not the Inspector Cluso detective v thing but the actual pink panther um, apparently it's going to be a live act- mix of live action and animation and it's going to be a kind of caper uh, directed by uh, Simpsons guy David Silverman who I'm not familiar with but if he's on The Simpsons that's got to be good um, he did the Simpsons movie, didn't he? Did he? Yeah, I think he directed so. it. Yeah. Okay. That's not gonna be good. Ah, oops. How
1: does that make you feel? Well,
2: a mix, mixture of emotions. So I need to step away from the mic for a sec. Um, yeah, I don't. I, I, I like Pink Panther. I used to always prefer the, the the kind of the intro with the Pink Panther, and then when it turned into a live action film, I was like, oh, mm. I want to see that Pink Panther <laughs> doing stuff. I actually used to have a little kaleidoscope thing that that was the Pink Panther running a car wash. that you? Did could, you? you could watch, but. Um, anyway uh i'm i'm up for this i'm i'm a fan of uh of pink panthers what do you guys think
0: (laughs) i think pink is a good color for a panther
2: i
1: think it's a cute idea i i see what they're doing there obviously they're trying to squeeze another drop out of this but uh yeah i certainly have enough you know affection for uh the 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 kids version um back back in the day so Yeah, it feels like it's
2: coming from a place of love rather than a cash in. Because honestly, I don't think that many people are going. Oh, I want to Mm. see the Pink Panther movie.
3: I I want to see a Pink Panther origin story. (laughs) How it becomes (laughs) pink. How how it was pink. What the thing with the jewelry? Where did that come from? The bling. Bling. He likes bling. He likes bling. Yeah. Well, they named the diamond after him.
2: Hmm. Why was he running a car wash then? He drives
3: that (laughs) ridiculously (laughs) fly sports car.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of origin to get into. Wow. so Get into it. You're right. He's, wow. a, he's a slick
3: Rick
0: You're literally the only person in the world who wants to hear that origin story. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your news, Phil.
3: Oh, my news. Uh, well, they're making a movie entitled The Fantastic Four.
0: I am worried. People may be
3: familiar with the with the comic book property, and it's abortive uh, adaptation a few years back. Um, <clears throat> the man behind this, obviously Josh Josh Trank from Chronicle, has staffed up his four, uh, as we know, and he has now added a villain to their ranks played by none other than toby kebel or if you prefer toby cabell and he will be playing victor von doom who i gather is something of a dark force in the world of the fantastic four he is and by no means a well-wisher
0: i think that's that's a fair assessment he is the ruler of latveria is he not
3: don't Um, hurt me arch i'm only little that kind of thing will be probably in the script. I'd, I'd really, imagine I really
1: hope
4: so yeah
3: but Toby Kebbell is good because I he felt like an actor that kind of really burst onto the scene he was a BAFTA Rising star uh, nominee a few years back he was fantastic in Control Ian Curtis film and the best thing in Rock and Roller then he was in Prince of Persia where he played one of one of Dastan's, yeah. Dastan fellow ma- mead gulpers with eyebrows set to raise throughout and saying things like Dastan <laughs> and gossip and that kind of nonsense, <laughs> which I don't think was the best showcase for his for his actual. He's a very charismatic screen mm. presence. I think, I think he'd be. I think he'll be a good, uh, a good villain in this movie. Um, I want to see him probably not behind the mask, ideally, because I think he's a very expressive. Uh, you know he's a talented actor
0: so maybe, maybe they'll do some CG stuff to his face or something I don't know I mean he is obviously also um, a, a, maybe not a bad guy but certainly an antagonist maybe is perhaps a more accurate way of putting it in uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes mm. is he not this summer so we won't be precisely seeing him but we will underneath.
3: Mm. No he's coming back he feels like he had a little bit of a patch where he wasn't getting the big roles but it feels like he's now really back and back on uh, back on track Mm -hmm. Um, the council he had a kind of a an unusual cameo in uh, Ridley Scott's counts Uh, he plays at the the, uh, horse track yeah he had one scene opposite Michael Fussbender which which is just like wow where has he come from and then he disappears and you never see him again Um, but yeah dawn and this and it's good to see him back because I think he's I think he's a really good actor Mm -hmm. Um, he was in war horse obviously for you know the short kind of unnamed part
0: so he's up against the Fantastic Four, who are, of course, now Miles Teller, Kate Mara, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Bell. Is that correct? That is 100% Excellent. correct and accurate. So, uh, well, best of luck to them. You know, he, they've got a formidable opponent. Mm. Um, and hopefully he'll have some minions to keep all four of them busy at all, any one time. Yeah,
1: if he has some really inept goons, that would really <laughs> mm. a, do- a big dog. It's nope.
0: not a Disney film. Come on, though. A
3: big dog. Where's Latveria? Just out of interest.
0: Um, it's in the middle of Europe. Why have one interview when you can have two? For our second one, Darren Aronofsky is the iconoclastic director of Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Black Swan and The Wrestler. His new film, Noah, takes an epic, fantastical look at the biblical story of the flood with Russell Crowe as the arc builder himself. We sent Phil and Ali along to interview him on Monday.
1: Which is just after the Empire Awards, which is why we're both kind of, um, let's, let's say...
4: Low professional?
1: energy? Yeah, we're, let's say we're incredibly professional. That's why we're quite incredibly professional. You
3: gave yeah. him your last
0: Rolo. I
1: did. We had a long, long chat about how much he does Rolos. You heard it here first. Uh, I want to start with a slightly, what may sound like a facetious question, but how do you have the balls <laughs> to take on the Bible?
4: Oh, well, um, I don't know. I, I, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. I think it's like one of our oldest stories, right? It's 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 a story that doesn't just belong to Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, it belongs to the world. It's like a UNESCO site. Hmm. It's uh, you know, and if, even if your culture doesn't know the Noah story, you have your own flood story, be you Aboriginal or Maya or Amazon or China. Everyone has a flood story, and there's something elemental about about water and our relationship to it, yet it had never been on the big screen. So it just seemed like a great opportunity to explore the big themes in the story. And where did it first come to you? What was it that made you think,
1: I've got to do this? Because it feels like such a passionate film.
4: Yeah. Well, it started off actually when I was 13, so it's 32 years ago now. But when I was 13 years old, I wrote a. I had a great teacher and one day she said everyone take out a paper and pen and write something about peace and I ended up writing a poem on Noah for, I was 13, so Noah is a big character when you're that age. And uh, it ended up winning a contest for the United Nations and it was the first thing I won as a storyteller and sent me down that path of writing.
3: You won a United Nations competition when you were 13.
4: Well, I don't, I mean, I think it was for school kids. It was, still, I wasn't competing against diplomats. I was still trying to figure
3: out how to do my shoelaces up at that age. <laughs> I, I was really interested that you met your, your, your fellow producer for, for much of your career and co-screenwriter on this, Ari Handel. Oh, you met him? No, no, no. The, no, oh, You yeah, met yeah, yeah. him at at Harvard originally, hadn't yeah. you? And, and yeah. you, you were sociology. Were you doing sociology? No, I was uh,
4: social anthropology Soci- is what they called it. Oh,
3: okay. Mm-hmm. And he was he was neuroscience, neuroscience. I think no, I think he might
4: have been a Russian studies, but then he went and he got a PhD in neuroscience after after Harvard. Yeah, as, not, as a, not a dumb guy. Yeah,
3: guys don't. Yeah. So what did you bond over originally, the two of
4: you? A bong? No, I didn't say that, did I? We bonded over friendship. You know, just we were living next door to each other and we just hung out and and um, I don't know. It, I don't think in college we weren't the greatest mates. It more happened. After college, he was becoming getting his PhD in neuroscience, and I was working on film, and he had such a huge brain that I'd often tell him the stories I was working on, and he was very, very clever and able to add a lot to it. And so after he got his PhD, he said um, he was kind of bored of, of of academia and was looking for another opportunity, and I co-opted him into Hollywood nice do you guys ever yeah. get together and form the world's most formidable quiz team <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good with quizzes he's the one he's got the uh, brain um, I have and one, we, one. we definitely have a weakness in pop culture so yeah, like okay. I couldn't tell you TV references and stuff I have friends for that you know really even Breaking Bad because you've got Mark Margolis obviously <laughs> voicing <laughs> exactly yeah.
1: speaking to a lot of people after this film the one thing that you do when you walk out of this film is you have something to say hmm. it, I think it connects with people it pushes them what do you say to people who, who say this film well that wouldn't have happened, and for example, there are these these glowing rocks that form a kind of sparking, banner-style yeah. fire ignition. Yeah, People say, well, what's that to do with
4: anything? Where does that come from? Well, it does come from—everything comes from something. There's this uh, one word in the story of uh, Noah in the four chapters, this this use of a word called sohar, which is actually the, what it's called in the movie. And uh, there's been—it's it's a very strange word where it's used in the Bible. It's the Hebrew word is sohar. And many there's been a lot of interpretation for thousands of years about why that word sohar is used there. It's the only time it's used in the Bible, and people have sometimes said it was a um, the window that Noah was able to look out of, and other people say it was a magical stone that uh, burned brighter during the day and dimmer at night. And so that kind of magical stone led us to sort of taking and creating some type of energy source for for that world, for that pre-Diluvian world. That's kind of what we did. We sort of set up a fantastical pre-Diluvian world because when you actually look in the Bible, it talks about everything in it is a miracle. It's a time without rainbows. Um, there's angels walking on on the planet. People are living for hundreds of years. Everything in that world is fantastical. It's not this world. So we wanted to create a Lord of the Rings mythical place. One of my favorite features of the film are the fallen angels.
1: Mm. Uh, there's astonishing visuals. For me, I got a kind of a Ray Harryhausen kick out of it. Mm. Is, is that what you were channeling? These are kind of multi-limbed, six-limbed. Walking almost golems,
4: yeah. Well, the golem idea was a big idea for us because you know, we're dealing with an ancient Jewish text, so it made sense. But you know, the problem is when you everything that ILM was showing me at the beginning were you know, these giants and they kind of had movement like humans. And you know, for the last 10 15 years, um, you guys are sci fi fans, you know, you've seen we've seen so many of those giants. I really wanted to break away from that aesthetic, and I was like, well, you know we should go back to some type of stop-motion feel, but the thing I more was going for was this Parkinson's feel because the idea of these creatures is that they're crippled and they're prisoners of the planet, and they're sort of these forms of light that basically are being punished and shackled to the planet. So I was trying to show their discomfort, and and that's kind of where that movement came from. Fascinated from your
3: perspective on what it was like to be on the inside of this movie because there were stories about the edit and... The, the, the fact that it was pre screened for specific American audiences. Yeah. And the the Noah as a story has resonance with lots of different faiths, not just Christianity, but you know, Judaism and yeah. Islam as well. Yeah, sure. So for me, for you as the kind of bellwether for all of these different kind of f- passions that people have for this text. Yeah. And for the studio trying to balance all that stuff. How stressful was it? You know, can you put it it's, on a scale of one to ten? It sucked.
4: It, it 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 was terrible. Because, you know, we all agreed on the f- script. We were green lighting and the film I was producing was that film. Um, and then people started to go, you know, then there started to be all this doubt. But, you know, everything is in the film for a reason. And it's all respectful of the original text in the same way I was respectful to Requiem for a Dream when I adapted it. But even more so because that I had 300 pages of a, of a novel to turn into a 100-minute long film. You know, when you're dealing with four chapters, you have to sort of respect every single word, every line, every possible interpretation. You're trying to honor it. So the film honors uh, Genesis. It just basically interprets it and breathes life into it for, you know, a 21st century audience. And um, I think at a certain point, uh, the studio, you know, wanted, like they always do, Iron Man. And I was saying, look, you know, I would like to have Iron Man too, but we know that the Russell Russell's character goes really dark in this film. And I don't have Robert Downey Jr., you know, basically being the great entertainer that he is. I have a guy going into the darkest of darkest places, considering doing the most terrible thing possible. How are we ever going to compete? That's not what this film is. But Eventually, they realized that that was the DNA of the material, that the material that we shot was that. And eventually, they got behind me and they fully supported me. It just took, it you know, when you're dealing with that amount of money, it just gets scary.
1: Were they just thinking of franchise
4: potential? Yeah. <laughs> there was never that issue, which is great. What do you call Noah 2? I mean, yeah. well, there's really ba- mean- the next story is Babel. And uh, Babel's actually a pretty good tale. story, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read Snow Crash.
5: Uh, yes, book. I have. It's Snow
4: astonishing. Cr- yeah, they have some great stuff from Babel in it. So maybe, maybe well, we do Joe that next. I think Cornish was attached to that. Was he? That would yeah. be a good interpretation. It's a great, great project. It's just huge. If you haven't read Snow Crash, guys, you need to go and read it. Snow Crash is fantastic. Does it hold up, though, I wonder? Because I read it. 15 years ago I wonder it starts off with guys like rollerblading or something isn't yeah. there you'd have to super, update it super skateboarders super skateboarders they, they that would have to change people, a little bit they
1: deliver a lot of pizza yeah um, exactly but, but there's still great shit in it speaking of vision there's another bit I love uh, with what I'm calling an armadillo uh, but it's an armadillo type dog uh, which, which is, which is armadillo <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> which is a, a creature you meet early on yes and this is kind of what I was talking about earlier This there are elements to this story which I think shock people who think they know Noah because yeah. they read it in a pop-up book. Yes, that's very patronizing.
4: But just no, but it's true. That's not that's not patronizing. That the what you're trying to say, which is the truth, is that it's been turned into a fable and a nursery uh, rhyme and songs for kids. And you know, Playmobil has a um, has a Noah set. You know, that's it's an ancient toy for kids. But the actual story, and when you read it in the Bible, is the destruction of creation. And for me, when I heard it as a kid, I have memories of being afraid because we all know, you know, the little lies we tell as little kids or the little thing we stole or whatever we did that was bad. We all, like, are living with that fear. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not good enough to get on the boat. I don't want to drown. I'm not Noah. But the it never says in the Bible that Noah was good. It says he was righteous, and righteous does not mean good. Righteous, it's a very curious word that took me— six months to sort of, of studying to try and figure out what it meant and it, what it really what most theologians say it means is a balance of justice and mercy um which just to finish as a parent you can sort of understand if you're too just with the child you can destroy them with strictness and if you're too merciful you can spoil them and the balance of that is what makes a righteous person but that doesn't mean you're good so when bill and ted describe someone as a righteous dude talking about bar
3: marley's righteous is you know you know who knows what it is now you met the pope didn't you yeah yeah not that long ago is he a fan of requiem for a dream i don't know i didn't we didn't get into any details he's more of a wrestler guy (laughs) like no spoilers on this
1: one he loves costumes so i think the wrestlers all over yeah (laughs) i just realized we didn't actually touch
4: on the armadillo dog where was the origin of the armadillo dog (laughs) Well, from the brain of uh, Adrian Moreau, uh, the best makeup guy in the business. I sh- shouldn't share with Empire readers because uh, all my favorite filmmakers will try to steal him. But, um, you know, we always wanted to create an animal kingdom that was similar to ours but wasn't your typical giraffe and elephant and zebra situation. We didn't want it to look like a zoo. We wanted to reinvent the animal kingdom and the whole feel of the film.
3: No portholes with giraffe's head sticking out.
4: No portholes holes with, yeah. Well, that's not in the Bible. You know, it, the thing that's so bizarre is that all religious art got the ark wrong. And if you actually look in, the, in Genesis, is a perfect description, you know, down to the cubit of the measurements and the proportions of the ark. And it is, you know, a, a very, very, very
1: big box. <laughs> I'm just grateful no one got seasick because. Yeah,
4: but that's what ark means. Ark actually means box.
1: So, hence, there you, go. you know, raiders. They're all Yeah, exactly. Gotcha.
3: Go. Have you been to Mount Ararat?
1: No, I haven't. It's a great mountain. <laughs> one of the best mountains. Oh, man. Is it? It is. You've been? What well, qualifies for a good it's mountain? It's big. <laughs> so big. It's <laughs> height. Is that it? So, honestly, it's it's one of my main proponents for judging whether a mountain is a mountain or not. You're
3: quite shallow in terms of mountains.
1: Um, now, we touched earlier about um, pop culture and you had friends that would answer your pop culture questions. Yeah. This hasn't stopped you being linked to big pop culture icons like... Right. Hugh Jackman's Wolverine who is currently in town is this something that might happen in the future you might be brought back into that superhero world or was that a possible just a diversion
4: I don't know I mean I'm always interested the problem is all the holy grails are sort of taken aren't they you know Mm. Um, Speaking of Raiders. Yeah, uh, exactly. But so I don't, um, you know, maybe if something emerged, I'd love to do it. I I love superhero films. And so I, I got really close on a few of them. I just, just hasn't worked out. Because you were in talks or you had early
3: talks or a meeting, Batman, yes. year one, before Christopher Nolan kind of yeah. came and got involved. Was it just one meeting? Was it? Oh,
4: no, no. Me and Frank Miller wrote a couple of scripts.
3: We worked together on some scripts of it. Yeah. Was there a lot of? you I mean just coincidentally coming from a different angle but was a lot of your vision in the in the Batman Begins Not really
4: no I think that I think Nolan's version is exactly what the studio wanted I think I was much more of a gritty feel is what we were going for but we eventually I um, got to make The Fountain that was the film I really wanted to make and I just chose to pursue that than than to stay on that I, I think I was a bit I probably wasn't in the right place. I I had too many stories I still wanted to tell, um, and I just wanted to make the fountain for all that time, and that was the one we followed. And your version
1: of Batman, of course, would have seen uh, the Batman who might have been naked on a beach drinking wine.
3: <laughs> which I'm sure that scene would have happened. If you live to be like, no, at 950 years old, yeah. they'll rebooted Batman 47 <laughs> yeah. times.
4: More than that. More than you that. So you, you'll get a chance. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Just yeah. make that happen. Um, we, we did a big celebration of movie soundtracks on, on Empire Online last year, oh, and cool. I spoke to Clint Mansell about working with you way back because yes. been, he's been your collaborator yeah. since day one pretty much mm. um, and he speaks obviously incredibly fondly of meeting you in the first place yeah, and the serendipity sure. of that. He said that he got, a, he, got a, he got a check, I guess a royalty check for Pi just recently when I spoke to him which was last oh, year wow. for 169 $169.
4: Yeah, oh, there we go. Are you still getting, you still getting checks through? Every, Every once in a while, it shows up. Keep renting that movie. Keep buying that movie. Right. Through the, the thing about that film, it was done totally socialistic where everyone – I mean, I own less than I think Clint owns. I own 1.2% of that I film. Wish you owned 3.142%. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Working on it. There is a
1: sequence in this film which is kind of the origin. mm and I felt as I was watching it, this is going to get studied. Did you feel like when you were pitching this film, that you, when you were creating this film, that, that was going to be a really special moment? It's, a, it's, it's, it's the origin of everything.
4: Well, I always knew when we first wrote it, when Ari and I first came up with the idea of it, we got excited about doing a single shot from mm-hmm. the Big Bang all the way through to the Garden of Eden. Um, and for me, it was one of the major reasons I did the film was to do that sequence. I'm glad you said that because you, you feel it as you watch it. <laughs> we always had the idea of you know just starting with the Big Bang and moving through that and seeing the formation of the of the of the Milky Way and yeah. seeing the formation of the Earth and the Moon and water and Earth and and then the creatures of life leading up to Eve. You know, yeah. What's it like when you are creating that presumably with ILM? Mm.
1: I've always been curious about how, as a director, you you see what they're trying to do. Obviously, they're realizing what you've.
4: Explain well, to them. Yeah. Are you often
1: going, no, 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 no. that, that salamander is too big?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's endless, endless, endless versions of it. You start off first with – we started off first with the plates, and we started off first in Iceland with um, – I wanted it all to be based in Iceland, at least the start of it, because it's so primordial there. And then we moved to other other places on the planet. But the first thing was collecting photographs and creating a photo montage of the backgrounds that would exist between um, – as, as the animal moved – up the evolution chain. Um, And then there was animations of the different creatures, and there was a lot of discussion of what those creatures were. We did endless research of, you know, kind of... uh, you know there's lots of holes in that pathway from amoeba to us exactly. you have to so really take but, that leap from lizard yeah to 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 uh, yeah and who knows if that really was the direction it was but at
1: least it gives a hint at what was going on that would make an amazing flip book to kind of tie into <laughs> i would love to see all of your photos just like prrr. Oh, so there's, there's...
4: There it is. Yeah, that's
1: a great idea. And a water park, obviously. Yeah, exactly. and now, again, you're going to feel like I'm pop culture obsessed, but I was wondering whether you'd seen the Japanese take, the Japanese Wolverine, is uh, with James Mangold and obviously Hugh Jackman. How did, have you had a chance to see it? Does, did it comp- Oh, yeah, I ha- did how too. Did, how did it, did it compare to your idea for for the...
4: Oh, well, it w- it's a very, you know, it would have been... I, who knows? I mean, I never got as far as James did down the path of of visualizing it I thought they did a great a great job with the script and I think it, it came live really well and Hughes always awesome mm-hmm. um, so it was you know I, I can't even you, you make a film when you're making it <laughs> so you have no idea what I mean you can sort of have ideas about certain things but it comes alive when you're actually in three dimensions with a camera with an actor mm-hmm. and taking advantage of what's in front of you so it's all there's so much circumstance involved before we let
3: you go, which we're going to have yeah. to do at some point soon, yeah. um, there, there were a few projects that you were linked with and then potentially unattached to, sure. I don't know if there's anything you can tell us about what you are going to do next, but Red Sparrow was a spy thriller. Um, I wasn't really ever involved never really, with
4: that. No? No, people, you know, everyone's quick to publish stories these days, and so they just publish stories all the time.
3: Does that sort of genre interest you? sort of espionage thriller
4: sure it would be interesting i mean i i I don't know you know there's a lot of genres i haven't done yet and i'd love to to explore all of them if i get a chance
3: i would
1: love an aronofsky bond that
4: that would would mean a lot to me
3: great i would like to see that so next up is too early to say
4: too early to say i'm gonna take a break recharge the batteries and see where i'm at in a little bit my last
1: final question is again quite silly your name is one of the best the best i have ever heard (laughs) Did anybody or does anybody call you downofsky Oh, yeah, sure. All right,
4: my friends. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you guys very much. Thank and you. thanks for last night. <laughs> thanks.
0: Okay, it's on to the main event now, reviews. This week, there are quite a few new films to talk about. But we're we're going to start with the meatiest and probably most debated of the bunch, Aronovsky's Noah. So this is a retelling of the Bible story. Russell Crowe is the good man in an evil world who is inspired to build an ark. Ali... Tell me more.
1: I will tell you more. I'll just fill you in more on the cast. We have Jennifer Connelly, obviously his co-star on a couple of films, but most notably uh, A Beautiful Mind as Noah's wife. There's also Noah's adopted daughter, uh, who is played by Emma Watson. Then there's Laura's uh, there two sons, played by uh, Douglas Booth, who's very handsome. And Logan Lerman, who's also very handsome, uh, but is called Ham. Logan Lerman is a prize ham in this film. Uh Oh, Uh -oh. anyway, so that's that's the cast. Also, there's God, who is uncredited cameo by uh, Terry Jones. (laughs) That's not not true. It is in a epic, fantastical, not Sunday school, not kiddie version take on uh, the Bible. That's 100% for certain. But this may surprise all of you, but this Darren Aronofsky movie is quite divisive.
0: No. It
1: is. Like some people are really engaging with it to the tune of $44 million in the US box office in its first weekend. And this is despite a lot of very fierce opposition from uh, the Bible Belt, shall we say, who disapprove of the way... Aronofsky has taken this very short part of the bible and turned it into something else has been inspired by it and there are elements of this which I'll get into later which you will understand why they maybe don't like this but anyway this there is no doubt is an un- 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 unmodified creative expression of a cinematic auteur this is Darren Aronofsky's Noah and There was a lot of conversation again. We talked about this in previous podcasts about how Paramount Studio was going, oh, can we try and cut this or change this? And we talk about the interview, um, quite frankly, with uh, with with Mr. Aronofsky. Uh, But it is his thing now. And that should be congratulated. I think it is a great thing that we have this big many million of dollar budget blockbuster movie that is a artist's vision. It has got flaws by the boatload, which, again, I'll get into later, but it is Something capital letters on S O M E T H I N G. I would say that I liked this film. I engaged with it. I thought it was different. I thought it was impressive. I thought it was shocking, and it had an important thing to say about, especially the state of this planet. Its eco message is runs through it like uh, a sticker rock. There is so much about the flood coming, and you know what has recently been in the news in terms of uh, we're not looking after our planet properly, and we are running out of time. So it really hits home on that front, but. It makes a few kind of almost unforgivable flaws, even from, dare I say it, the kind of hokey typeface it starts with. It's 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 weird how you watch this film and whether you enjoy it or don't, you will leave going, well, he should have done that. And why did he do that? And, you know, it's one of those films that you cannot walk out of it and go, well, that was just plain brilliant uh, in particular there are the fallen angels who are part of this story, who help Noah construct the Ark. I think visually they're stunning, and I said so as much to Darren Aronofsky. I said, I think they're beautiful. They're stop-motion, Ray Harryhausen type, lumbering, rock-like Transformers-esque creatures. And I just thought they were visually great, but they will possibly make people recoil because they'll just go what is this i don't understand it this is strange this is weird and you've just got to have an open mind to kind of get in on it russell Crowe who plays noah he's a very tortured as, as you know from the original story he uh, he's a very tortured uh, man does it really well there is no one else on this planet who could do it like to have that gravitas and to have that presence to pull off this i think he's very good indeed i think this movie also serves from the fact that i felt like the director was a big fan of certain scenes You know that feeling when you watch a movie and you go, well, he obviously loved this scene and he loved this scene and this scene was great. One in particular is something that a lot of people have been praising is a time lapse history of the universe's creation from, you know, a cell splitting to a salamander crawling out of the you know, a lizard crawling out of the sea to apes to whatever. And that's part of the reason why I said it was controversial in the US in particular. I think that is stunning. I think this will be studied by people in universities for years to come. That sequence is beautiful. But again, like I say, that felt like the focus. Mm. Then a couple more scenes will go by, and then there'll be another one where you could feel the white-hot energy of his creative genius, and then it would move on a bit more. I've got lots to say. I'm sorry for talking so much about this. It's intense. It's difficult viewing. Even, as I say, if you do like it, you will also not like it. It's a bit bonkers at times. It takes a while to get going. I feel impressed by it, but I do not love it. I think it is clever and important and big and brash and bold but let's let somebody else talk.
0: <laughs> I would kind of agree with that. It, f- it felt to me like um, there are many, many things about it that I thought were brilliant, and I do admire the fact that it just got made in the first place. is pretty incredible. I agree with you completely on Crow. I think some of the other performances are sometimes a little bit iffy, but he is flawless. But it, it felt to me like a, a movie of-, of several different parts which didn't always fit together terribly harmoniously, and, and I felt like sometimes, uh, you know, the... the- the, the big sort of story arc I guess of the of the third act didn't feel always to flow particularly well through the first two acts you know um I felt like it, it sort of it, it felt like there was there was a story you know number one noah is a good man in a world of evil men and we're setting this whole thing up number two noah is inspired by God to build an ark no number three noah's not sure whether man deserves to survive at all there's, there's sort of these three different arcs in the film and and they there was a, a sort of a shift between them that didn't always sit terribly well with me and you know it, it did feel a little bit uh, heavy on well it's obviously going to be kind of heavy on the religion not necessarily Christianity I mean this is an Old Testament thing this is the vengeful God this is not the you know lovey-dovey hippie God um, and and that sort of is is sometimes a little bit, I don't know, hard to, for modern ears, I think.
2: There's some dark stuff, definitely. Very there's, dark there's, stuff. There's some stuff which doesn't really get addressed. There's some incest stuff in there, which mm. you probably will walk out the film scratching your head going... Oh. But that, well, that's the Bible over, really. It is, I know, but then it's sort of in the convention of a Hollywood film that ends on a kind of Hollywood note of... Hey, it does sort of end in that upbeat note, and you're kind of going, you know, that's... Mm. Anyway, um, it's uneven... I, I kind of found myself laughing at a few bits, not there, out loud, disruptively, but you
1: know. there, there are there are bits that are laughable. I think that that's that's what I was trying to get a, get a handle on. A there bit. is it's difficult. There's not one to... there's one particular bit where in this attempt to modernise this biblical story, I won't reveal what it is, but it is it is part of the plot which could possibly be a spoiler. I did hear those kind of uh,
2: film festival whore, whore, whore laughs. Oh. Um, from the screening i was in but i mean there's a sort of uh shonky cg snake there's anthony hopkins talking about berries a lot he has an entire subplot where he's talking about berries which is quite difficult not to laugh at um and I, i've got to confess when the when the big transformers battle did break out i it's difficult it was difficult for me to, to sort of take that seriously i kind of love that bit i kind of love that
1: uh that fight sequence this this film has about eight tones it has epic fantasy film a la Lord of the Rings. It has obviously biblical epic. It also has disaster movie. It also has insular hotbox. Um, and it has like a large
2: drama. almost. I thought of Dogville in the second half of the mm. film when they get on the arc, it yeah. turns into this really minimal, mm. weird, intense. Dark, dark, dark drama that doesn't have any. It's so different from the blockbustery battle where these sort of robot creatures are sort of getting exploderized, mm. and you're just going, "What is this film?" It's so many different things I've, going on at the same yeah, time. Yeah,
3: I agree. It's only better than 2012. Um, I'll say that for it. A story with a similar similar themes and a similar plot, um, but yeah, it just felt like um, lots of stuff in it was was really uh, captivating uh, visually, and the performance of Russell Crowe anchors it fantastically well. But it did feel like a strange mix of auteurship and studio guidance, to me anyway. Regardless of Aronofsky saying that it's very much his film, I'm sure it is, but he presumably bought into the stuff that reminded me an awful lot of things we'd seen in the Isengard battles of Lord of the Rings uh, quite a long time ago, without really adding much to that, that whole idea of, you know, Ray Winston's villain. It just felt really, really thumpingly conventional in a film that was extremely... Sort of unorthodox in a good way, often, um, and I, it end the, the final twenty minutes. And still, we should have had big grace notes. Just felt like it just ended. It just kind of.
1: Ugh, it's. it's, it's he's, he's a bit hamstrung, no pun intended. Again, by the source material. There is a.
3: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, he chose to make it, so I don't. And
1: like...
0: also, I think I feel like we can. You know, he's he's hamstrung only to a certain extent. He introduces a lot.
1: I, I think I just in particular about, I, you're right, you're right, I will say you're right, but in the terms of that last 20 minutes, and please, if you haven't read the Bible, I'm sorry, uh, There, it's not that long, this bit, you can just read it before you watch the film, if you do end up watching the film, where Noah comes back from completing this mission, spoiler, he does, and he gets wasted, he drinks a lot of wine and is discovered naked that's something that's there and that's a weird thing to it you can't not include it but it is do you, you see what I'm saying Like, and I think that kind of
2: I think that plays kind of well in the film yeah, it's like a survivor's bit. guilt thing which mm. I think mm. works and mm. it. it actually bit really works what Phil was describing the two ball cane the Ray Winston character in, in the that, last 20 minutes that has kind of no that and the, the, we're talking as a film in a whole now but that, that, that character is mentioned in the bible but obviously his entire story in this film has been created by Aronofsky and it's kind of cheesy. It does feel like they've, had, they've thought we have to have a villain who's doing villainous things and trying to fight the, the good guy and stuff. Thing.
3: But I agree with you about the, the Russell Crowe well, stuff. Obviously, we should wrap this up, but
1: the fact that we're talking about it this much indicates that it does have that power. You walk out of this film, you have an opinion. You have lots to talk about. There is a lot to think about. It is one of those movies. And for that, it should be congratulated. Uh, it really, really should. You cannot walk out of this movie and go, meh.
0: Well, we talked to uh, I talked to Hugh Jackman earlier this week, and he was saying, uh, basically... All that Darren Aronofsky wants of one of his films is that you talk about it, and he has certainly succeeded in that case. We gave this four stars, which is very much a recommendation. Uh, Next up, we've got a much hyped young adult novel adaptation. Divergent has been talked up as a successor to The Hunger Games and stars Shailene Woodley as a young girl in a sort of post apocalyptic society who has to choose to join one of five factions that control her world, and she has to hide her true divergent nature. So I think I'm going to take the lead on this one. Let me explain what the heck is going on, if I can. Um, So this is in future Chicago, which is walled off, isolated. We don't know what's happened. We don't know why it's happened, but it's on its own. Uh, And society is divided into five slightly ungrammatical factions. There is uh, er erudite, which is the intelligent faction, candor, the honest people, abnegation, the selfless, Uh, amity, the friendly types and Dauntless, who are the, the daring people. Um, Sh- uh, Shailene Woodley plays Beatrice, or Triss, who's grown up in Abnegation. Uh, when she goes for testing at 16, she learns that she is, in fact, divergent, that she is equally attuned to any one of three factions. Um, and she has to hide this, because for some reason, it's not quite clear why, this is a, a threat to her society. Um, so she hides that. She, joins, she chooses to join Dauntless, um, and heads off to, to join them and has to compete in training for them because they have a sort of competitive entry system. If you're not in the top, I don't know, 60% of the class, you get cut and you become factionless, and that basically means you're poor and alone forever. Um, and uh, and she's, you know, under the additional pressure that she has to hide the fact that she's divergent. Uh, she's also, there's a hunky trainer involved there as well. He's played by Theo James. Um, so it's all a complicated setup. Um, and I think the problem with this film is a problem in the book. It's that this complicated setup is never quite justified in the book. For the simple reason that, and I don't think this is a spoiler um there are two more books, and the reasons why society has developed this way are sort of the twist in those books. Therefore, you cannot explain it in the first film <laughs> you You literally can't give anything more thing more. So what I think Neil Berger, who made this film, has tried to do is tried to give. Just enough explanation of why this would have happened to hopefully keep you going through the film. But it's such a big ask that I think that's going to be the big stumbling block for most people. If you can buy that, if you can just go with it, go, Okay, fine five factions for some reason you're best if you only have one virtue cool whatever then you can kind of enjoy it you know really really good kind of supporting cast in this one loads of uh, big name adult actors you've got Kate Winslet as the head of Erudite who's the sort of you know leader of the whole thing you've got um, uh, Tony Goldwyn as Beatrice's dad Uh, and Ashley Judd as her mother you know you've got really good people in there but you just have to buy this huge thing in the Mm. middle which Phil I don't think you did
3: you'd be right in thinking that although (laughs) I now feel like anything I say that's by way of like analysis or criticism should be sort of prefaced by or ended with a question mark because like you said (laughs) I don't know I don't know where this is going I haven't read the books and I'm not entirely sure but I also feel like it's one of those films where you you don't feel like you necessarily should need to have done that it should sell itself straight away and um and it also has that thing of, like, it's got the sequel baiting ending. Now, James is at me for, um, for not channeling my inner 13-year-old girl enough with this sort of thing. But I'm like, straight away, it lost me. Because, first of all, it does that annoying thing of telling, not showing. You know, it's yeah. basic 101. Sure, there's exposition, but this has... Double, triple helpings of exposition with cherries on top, um, which runs throughout. It doesn't have enough subtlety in the way it builds the world or explains why this has happened. But I think, more to the point, I mean, I haven't read the books and I know they're super popular, but any notion of like dividing a society on such a imbecilic lines it's just <laughs> lost me. I mean, the, the, the millions of years of evolution and, and the. <laughs> incredible complexity of humanity reduced to five I I mean it just blows my mind the the premise of this it just seems so ridiculous that this girl is unusual because she's able to be more than one thing you know I mean that's just to me ridiculous and so I'm not really with her on the journey and the fact that when she does have the sort of Harry Potter sorting hat situation where she has to choose her faction, she leaves her family. She just walks out on them. You know, and you're supposed to be like, wow, she's a really caring abnegation type person. She's compassionate and caring. And she literally doesn't tell them she's gonna do it. She chooses another faction and just walks out. And that's the last she sees of them until whenever. Now that's not a spoiler because that comes quite early in the piece, but you know, you're asked to to, to like a lot of people that I found. I mean, I have to say that Dauntless were probably the most annoying group of film characters I've ever seen in any movie. I mean, they're like Hitler Youth without the sense of humour and the cool shorts. They just run around whooping and climbing things for no reason and just being obnoxious. It's to
0: show that they're dauntless, dude. You know, how else are you going to show that you're daring and courageous? Uh, you know I I think they they were I think that's him trying to show not tell which faction is which and I think you know he did that as well with the design of the film with the houses where everybody lives you know Mm. the abnegation living in these tiny little grey boxes Yeah. very very spartan inside uh, but I I
3: don't know what the point I mean I guess this comes later later in the franchise or later in whatever but I don't know what he's trying to say I mean I I came out of thinking it felt like Starship Starship Troopers without any satire or any point to make
0: but I think this is this is the the problem You, you 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 know, he's adapting the book and I think he does a very good job of adapting the book. I think these problems are in the source material.
3: And Neil Berger, I mean, you know, uh, Limitless was, was, was full of interesting ideas. So hopefully, he's not doing the next one, I know, but you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know.
0: I think, I mean, listen, I think, you know, as a setup, I think, you know, they do what they have very well. I do think, as we've both said, I think, the setup is flawed in itself and it's limited in itself and that kind of undermines what they actually achieve on top of it. But decent performances, you know, uh, Woodley's pretty good. She's got, it's it's, a, its an underplayed sort of a role. Tris isn't always the easiest person to kind of get into, but I think she does quite well. Um, Theo James is, is just about the right side of brooding. Um, hmm. So, yeah, we gave this three stars. I
3: would just say one final thing. I think maybe it's a reflection of how good The Hunger Games is. That in its shadow you know this may be pales
0: yeah, that's probably fair. Um, but anyway, Divergent, three stars. Uh, it is a recommendation, but probably mostly for those who are fans of the books already. Um, next up, we're getting there. We, we are getting there. Next up, we have the second film from Richard Ayoade, following the storming submarine, which stars Jesse Eisenberg as a man who, frankly, the universe hates everything that could possibly go wrong for him and quite a few things that really shouldn't uh, do go wrong. And his life gets even worse when a man who looks precisely like him shows up and does his life, but better. Uh, Phil, what did we make of this one?
3: I it's I well Richard Iowadi, I mean, his first film, Submarine, was was a real attention grabber. I mean, he clearly has a very you know, he's very cine literate, he has a real notion of what sort of films he wants to make. I like this film because it feels very, very different from anything else you're gonna see. I, again I think it's Marmite. Not everyone's gonna enjoy this. It's it's quite a dark sort of satirical world. It's a little Brazil, Terry Gilliam, George Orwellian, um, you know, Huxley, all of those sort a bit of Kafka as well. And, yeah, Kafka is probably the best reference point because it's nothing really makes any sense. You know, if you liked... I, one of my favorite Coen brothers films is The Hudsucker Proxy because it sets this world where everything's a little kind of off kilter, and it's like that, but it's a darker kind of world, and 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 you're you're plunged into that darkness straight away because you see a sort of a suicide, um, and 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 these two police suicide DNA whatever experts kind of roll up with the ambulance and they they're very much you know it's got a very black black humor uh they kind of they kind of immediately analyze um Jesse Eisenberg's character Simon James for like his likelihood of killing himself and decide that he's probably quite a high risk and then they go on their way without you know batting an eyelid about it he is a man that is you know struggling he's very timid and diffident and Based on the Dostoevsky story, but quite differently, uh, his his doppelganger turns up. Uh, Simon James. He's James Simon James. Simon. James Simon arrives, and everybody loves James Simon. He's confident. He's kind of, but he just everything falls into place for him all the time, and uh, and and no one recognizes that they're the same. They're exactly the same. No one actually twigs. So, the, you know, our hero is left in this kind of weird. Weird kind of mental, mental sort of hinterland where he's not really sure yeah. what the hell is going on anymore, um, and he's doubting himself.
0: It's it's basically sort of a social network Jesse Eisenberg versus like Zombieland Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. You know, the the incredibly competent, incredibly smart one versus the. The very unsure, very very kind of timid. Yes,
3: one. absolutely. Good. That's a good analogy. You know, maybe there's the Lex Luthor side as well. He's just a he's you know not malevolent, but he's a very negative, malign force in his life mm. and uh, and leads him in strange directions. he has got a great great cast that I always put together. It's great to see Wallace Shawn getting you know being back on the screen more regularly. James Fox turns up. Noah Taylor has a great little part. Um, Mio Wasikowska. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed it Four stars I don't know if Everyone else is going to feel As strongly You probably need to go in
2: I will say I have seen it also I did not like it as There much, you go As Phil did Yeah um, I loved Submarine I thought it was really bright and smart I thought this was a bit brazil light. To be honest Brazil light, yeah. yeah. It's whether
1: you're willing to uh, accept uh, uh, the filtration of four or five different ideas of Orwell and Gilliam and all this kind of stuff. Are you willing to accept that as a new inventive idea, or are you going to see all the references too clearly and find yourself detached from it?
0: Oh, I don't know. I think, I think, I think I kind of saw all of that, but still felt really into it. I think it's it's just got that it's it's that really, you know, Eastern European slash Russian. Um, bitter comedy, like, like not just black, but incredibly bleak and incredibly bitter about mm. it comedy but it's still very very funny uh, dark and chocolate very dark like this is we're talking 90% cocoa Solids here this is, is. like some seriously yes. heavy stuff I wanted to but, yeah. but just I, I just loved it at the I same wanted time. to
2: see a feature length version of the Paddy Constine, uh TV show <laughs> yes. yeah. film, which I can't remember the name of now it's like the duplicator or something like yeah. that it's got some kind of parallel to the, the it, main action yeah, it's kind yeah. of it's kind of, kind of like Blake 7 show, that? that's great it's like terrible it's, it's got uh, this massive sci-fi, sci-fi Hoover. Garth show yeah, I, I wanted to like it. I really like Roche Waddy. No one likes Garth Marenghi's Dark Place more than more than I, which he directed, and that's Phil's putting his hand up, so he likes it as much. I see. Uh, There are probably other people as well, but I, I, I wasn't blown away by this. I thought the production design was very, very good. I thought the world was well thought out. Um, I thought the camera, the, the style of the movie was great for it, quite De Palma-esque but I thought the story itself was a bit lacking.
0: Okay, so that one got four stars from us, which is obviously a big recommendation. Finally, for the big reviews this week, we have the sequel to Rio, which again stars Jesse Eisenberg and Anne Hathaway as blue parrots who face trouble for a little like an evil cockatoo or something. Tell us more.
1: Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, God. This is very similar to the first Rio, uh, which came out a few years ago, which was a bit of a smash hit in its own its own way. did very well. Um, Colourful, bright, clever, cute... Perfect half term fare, like jolly stuff. And you get more of the same here. It's second helping of of that particular sweet apple pie. I have no real problems with this film, apart from maybe the fact that there are similar to the first one. there are too many characters here. You've got Will I am as a bird and there's Jamie Foxx Mm-mm. as a bird and everyone's a bloody bird. There's just there's too much going on. It kind of keeps all the plates spinning. It kind of keeps it all together. It's it's obviously one of those scripts that people have really looked over, but it does have too many characters and maybe three plot lines that could have been two and it would have been fine. There's a fantastic sequence uh, where they're playing football, uh, these these different macaws Bluebirds uh, against another type of parrot, uh, redbirds. It doesn't really matter what the plot is. I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's solid family fare. That uh, if you have a young uh, niece or nephew or son or whatever, you could do a hell of a lot worse. The voice cast all seem to be doing uh, a decent job. And
3: uh, if someone says they didn't like it, I'd say they'd be quite, quite harsh, mm. quite harsh indeed. If you have a little niece or nephew, take into the double. <laughs> And then and then but if that's sold out yeah, definitely Rhear Two. What would you what sort of chocolate bar would you say the Rhear Two is? I would say a Rio Two is a dairy milk, hundred percent. Like it is
1: so or it might be pop rocks, colourful, sparkly, tongue, bursting, sugary
3: yeah. stuff. Interestingly, the last sort of half an hour sort of turns into avatar, I thought. There is an um, Avatar
1: element, it is based in the Amazon rainforest. Does yeah. Jermaine Clement get a song? Jermaine Cl- oh God, yeah. Jermaine Clement, who there's an interview with him on the website, which you'll enjoy, where uh, it, here's an example of one of the lyrics where he does a rap. He goes, You beat me at ping pong, I'll just play ping ponger. previous film, he um, talks about how uh, if you try to make a mess of me, I'm going to put you on a rotisserie. So it's that <laughs> level of forced punnage.
0: I prefer the first pun, I'll be honest. That The second one's a little weak. Now, hang on. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first film was all about these two parrots being the last, of their, these macaws being the last of their species. Now it turns out they totally have family.
3: They have a huge They're not family. as low as them It's a lie.
1: Huge. It's been a lie all along. That's the twist.
0: Oh, I feel like There's lied too to. many of them in a way. They need I, can't, I can't cope with this anymore. I'm moving on. Also out this week, Mark Cousins' uh, A Story of Children and Film, Uh, got four stars that is as the name suggests about children and film Um, Honor which stars Paddy Considine in his second appearance of the week uh, gets two stars. Uh, Visitors which is a surreal documentary about technology gets three and The Motel Life with Emile Hirsch and Stephen Gendorf gets four and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be joined by Gareth Evans to talk about The Raid 2 and Sam Claflin to rather confusingly get very loud about The Quiet Ones until then, it's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. From Ali. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to collect some of that Saharan sand, put it in sandbags, just in case Aronofsky was right.